Welcome to Asbury United Methodist Church. My name's Pastor Will. Thanks for joining our podcast. This is where you'll be able to find all of our sermons, as well as special devotionals and interviews. We hope these messages inspire hope and bring support as you grow on your journey of faith. If you have any questions, or if you want further conversation, or if you simply like what you hear, connect with Asbury through our Facebook page or by checking our website at asburymaitland.org. Well, last Sunday marked the beginning of Advent, uh, the season that brings us into Christmas, and we launched a new preaching-slash-teaching series for Advent titled Christmas at the Movies. Our aim in these messages, our aim in these sermons is to examine Advent's themes of hope, peace, joy, and love, and the biblical essence of Christmas through the lens of five cherished holiday movies. Uh, these movies are not just any movies, they're some of the classics. Um, last week, we turned our attention to the 1947 film, Miracle on 34th Street. Well, today, this morning, uh, we shift our focus to another great movie, and that would be Home Alone. How many of you have seen Home Alone? Pretty much everybody. Now, Home Alone is the most contemporary movie we have on deck for this series. But in truth, it's not all that contemporary. Do you know when this movie came out? 33 years ago in 1990. Anybody feeling a bit of nostalgia right now? <laughs> Written by the late John Hughes, who created some of the best comedy movies of the 1980s and the early 1990s, movies like Ferris Bueller's Day Off, The Breakfast Club, Uncle Buck. Home Alone is considered by many film critics to be one of John Hughes's best. Home Alone is actually, it's my understanding, uh, it is the second highest grossing Christmas movie of all time and the most rewatched Christmas film. Not only that, but Home Alone has birthed an entire franchise, including five sequels. Now, granted, Macaulay Culkin is only in one sequel, but five sequels nevertheless, three board games, two video games, and a partridge and a pear tree. <laughs> but don't let the fact that Home Alone is a comedy mislead you. This movie is funny. This movie is hilarious. There is no question. But there is also depth and substance to it. If we have the eyes and the ears of faith, which I hope we do, we will discover biblical themes, biblical truths within this movie. In fact, what I want to suggest in this sermon is that in a lot of ways, Home Alone conveys the core message of Christmas, that in Jesus Christ, God has come into this world to reconcile us to God and each other. If you're taking notes during the sermon, I would invite you, I would encourage you to write this down. In Jesus Christ, God has come into this world to reconcile us to God and each other. And so what I want to do in this message is I want us to see how the movie Home Alone illustrates this truth. Are you ready? So the movie begins just a few days before Christmas. Macaulay Culkin plays the part of Kevin McAllister, this little boy you see up here on the screen. Kevin is an eight-year-old boy who mistakenly gets left behind when his family leaves on a trip to Paris for Christmas vacation. On the eve of the big trip, the entire McAllister family is gathered at their home. Do you remember where the home is located? 
in Chicago, Chicago, Illinois. They're all gathered at their home in Chicago, Illinois. All the extended relatives are there, 15 people in all. And that night, little Kevin is picked on, and he is ridiculed by his older cousins and siblings. And then after a fight with his big brother, Buzz, over the fact that Buzz ate his cheese pizza, oh my goodness, his favorite food in the world, Kevin is sent upstairs by his mother to the third floor of the house, right to bed. He is enraged. He is ticked off. He thinks that all of this is unfair. Well, just before he storms upstairs, he announces to his mother that he hates everybody, and he wishes that he were no longer a part of the family. In fact, he doesn't want to be a part of any family. And then that night, he just sits in bed stewing, wishing deep down that his family would go away and disappear. Well, that night, strong winds outside caused damage to the power lines, causing all the alarm clocks in the house to reset. Now, remember, folks, this was 1990. Hardly anybody had a cell phone in 1990. And so there were no alarm clocks on the cell phone back then. And so what happened is airport transport arrives early the next morning, and the entire McAllister family has overslept. I know it's hard to believe not one person out of 15 people woke up, but the whole family has overslept. So now they're in a panic. They're trying to leave. Their flight takes off in less than an hour. How are they going to get to the airport? Well, in their rush to get out of the house, nobody thinks to go to the third floor and wake up Kevin. So by the time Kevin gets out of bed, the house is empty. In this first clip, we see Kevin's reaction when he finds out that his family isn't there. Take a look. I made my family disappear. Kevin, you're completely helpless. No, Kevin, you're what the French call les incompetents. Kevin, I'm going to feed you to my tarantula. Kevin, you are such a disease. There are 15 people in this house, and you're the only one who has to make trouble. Look what you did, you little jerk. I made my family disappear. So in Kevin's eight-year-old mind, his wish from the night before came true. He made his family disappear. And initially, he is thrilled rather than saddened by this reality. Now he can enjoy the house with no rules, no restrictions. He can run in the halls. He can jump on the bed. He can eat junk food. He can enjoy a cheese pizza all to himself. He can watch old gangster movies with nobody to tell him that he's too little to do that. Essentially, Kevin has the house to himself. Did anybody ever want that as a kid? Does anybody still want that even now as an adult? It's okay to raise your hand. But then after a while, Kevin realizes that life without his family isn't as great as he thought it would be. Loneliness sets in. He starts to miss everybody. 
he also realizes that he is vulnerable when he's home alone. For example, his neighbor next door, old man Marley, continues to show up. And the neighborhood kids have spread a rumor that old man Marley murdered his family with a snow shovel back in 1958. What if old man Marley comes after Kevin? Kevin also has to worry about a pair of burglars known as the Wet Bandits, Harry and Marv, who want to rob his parents' home while they're away. So maybe little Kevin made a mistake by wishing that his family disappeared. You know, if we think about it, Kevin's story in this movie actually mirrors a story that Jesus told in one of the Gospels. In fact, it is probably the most famous story of Jesus, the most well-known story of Jesus. Do you know which story I'm talking about? The parable of the lovesick father, commonly called the parable of the prodigal son, which we find in Luke's gospel, uh, Luke chapter 15, verses 11 to 32. Let me summarize it for us. Well, in this story, as it opens up, uh, Jesus says that there was a father who had two sons, a father with two sons. Well, one day, the younger son came to his father, and he basically said to his father, hey, dad, I want my share of the estate before you die. That was his way of saying, Dad, you might as well be dead to me. I don't love you. I don't care about you. I don't want to be in a relationship with you. You are only as good as the money that you've left me in the will. And even though the younger son's request is offensive and it grieves the father and breaks his heart, he grants it. He doesn't want to force his son to stay at home. He gives his son his share of the inheritance. And then according to Jesus, this younger son takes off he goes to a distant country. He squanders the money away in loose living. I'll leave it to your imagination to figure out what loose living entailed. Let's just say this young man was partying it up. He was having a really good time. But then after a while, money ran out. Famine set in. He had to get a job feeding the pigs, which of course in Judaism, pigs are considered unclean. That was Jesus' way of saying, this guy hit rock bottom. And just like Kevin McAllister, this young man realizes that life without his family is not all that it's cracked up to be. But Kevin McAllister in the movie and the young man in this story also share something else in common. Do you know what it is? They both have parents who are absolutely crazy about them who are so madly in love with them that they will do whatever it takes to be with their child. And so on the airplane ride to Paris, Kate McAllister, Kevin's mom, she realizes, oh my goodness, Kevin is home alone. And so they land in Paris and she tries to get an immediate flight home. But she has a hard time doing so. All the flights are full. And so in this next clip, we see Kate's determination to get that flight so that she can get to Chicago as soon as possible. Check it out. So we have the $500, the pocket translator, the two first-class seats. That's an upgrade from your coach. Is that a real Rolex? Do you think it is? No. But who can tell? I also have a, a ring. Oh, that is beautiful. Come on, Irene, they're boarding. Oh, this gal has offered us two first-class tickets if we go Friday. Plus a ring, a watch, a, a pocket translator, $500, and the earrings. You love the earrings. She's got her own earrings, a whole shoebox full of dangly ones. No, but... 
I'm desperate. I'm begging you, from a mother to a mother, please. Oh, Ed, please. Nothing in the universe is going to stop Kate McAllister from getting to her eight-year-old son. Money, watches, earrings, these things don't mean anything to her. You ever heard the expression mama bear? She is a mama bear in the fullest sense of the term who wants nothing more than to be back with her cub. Well, that's really not that far off from what happens in the story that Jesus told. In fact, listen to what Jesus says here when this younger son finally decides to use his free will to come back to his father. This is verse 20, chapter 15 of Luke. So he, that would be the younger son, so he returned home to his father, and while he was still a long way off, can we all say that line together? And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming, filled with love and compassion. He ran to his son. Embraced him and kissed him. Folks, the younger son was barely within eyesight of his father when his father started racing to him. I've mentioned before in previous sermons that in the ancient world at the time of Jesus, running was considered degrading, it was considered humiliating, it was considered culturally inappropriate. Patriarchs of well-established families did not run. And so by running, this father loses all sense of social inhibition. He didn't care about dignity. He didn't care about status. He didn't care about what people thought. Just like Kate McAllister in the movie, didn't care about money or jewelry. Both wanted to be with their child. And from a cosmic perspective, Christmas portrays God's active pursuit of human beings through the embodiment, uh, the incarnation of Jesus Christ, as theologians tell us. It involves God laying aside his divine perks, his divine privileges, his divine status, immersing himself in the human experience and subjecting himself to incredible degradation. Think about how Jesus was born, not in a palace, but among a bunch of animals. Think about how Jesus died as a criminal, a cross, naked, humiliated. God did all this all with the purpose of being with us, being with you, being with me, and this whole world. The Apostle Paul, one of the primary writers of the New Testament, he eloquently describes this concept in his famous Christ hymn, found in Philippians. This is Philippians 2, verses 6 through 8. Paul says, though he, that would be Jesus, though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to, or some translations say something to exploit, something to use for himself. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges, or as Charles Wesley would say, he emptied himself of all but love. He gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. In Jesus of Nazareth, the God of the universe, 
went to remarkable lengths to be with us. Just like the lovesick father went to remarkable lengths to be with his son. Just like Kate McAllister in this movie went to remarkable lengths to be with Kevin. And so Kate McAllister, she gets that flight. She's on her way back to Chicago. Well, meanwhile, Kevin discovers that the wet bandits, remember the wet bandits, the burglars who want to rob his parents' home? Well, the wet bandits know that Kevin is home alone. And so now Kevin finds himself in a unique position where he feels compelled to defend his household. And that's what this movie is most well known for, the tactics, the very creative tactics that Kevin McAllister uses to defend his household. Uh, let's watch this clip and see what these tactics are. Kevin is vulnerable when he's home alone. He's a smart kid. He's clever. He's good at keeping away the bad guys. But he also knows that things would be so much better if his family were there. And so Kate McAllister, she's rushing back to Chicago. And as we've already noted, her rushing back to Chicago gives us a portrait into what God did for us in Jesus Christ to draw us back to himself, how God went to incredible and remarkable lengths to be with us. And yet this movie also sheds light on another aspect of the incarnation. Jesus is coming. That in Jesus, God not only desires to reconcile us to himself, God also desires to reconcile us to each other. That God makes provision in Jesus Christ for the broken relationships within our lives to be repaired. You know, the truth is, this film portrays a lot of broken relationships, doesn't it? Number one, there are the broken relationships that Kevin has with the members of his family. And yet, Kevin is not the only person in this movie experiencing broken relationships. On Christmas Eve night, just before Kevin deters the wet bandits, he's walking the streets of his neighborhood. He's feeling sad and alone. Well, suddenly he walks by a church building, and he hears the children's choir inside the sanctuary at one of the Christmas Eve services singing the hymn, 
Oh, holy night. Isn't that a great hymn? So Kevin goes inside the sanctuary just looking for some peace, looking for some solace, some comfort. He sits down in one of the pews. Do you know who he runs into in the sanctuary? Of all people, he encounters old man Marley. Remember old man Marley's neighbor next door? Who all the neighborhood kids insist murdered his family with a snow shovel in 1958? Oh no, now he's in trouble. Well, Marley comes up to him. He says, Merry Christmas. To Kevin's surprise, all those rumors about Marley are not true. Marley is a genuinely nice man. He sits down next to Kevin. The two of them share a conversation as the choir is singing. And in the conversation that they share, Marley reveals to Kevin that he too is grappling with brokenness in his own life. Let's watch this scene to find out more. I'm in kind of a pain lately. I said some things I shouldn't have. I really haven't been too good this year. Yeah. I'm kind of upset about it because I really like my family. Even though sometimes I say I don't. Sometimes I even think I don't. Do you get that? I think so. How you feel about your family is a complicated thing. Especially with an older brother. Deep down, you always love them. But you don't forget that you love them. And you can hurt them, and they can hurt you. And that's not just because you're young. You want to know the real reason why I'm here right now? Sure. I came to hear my granddaughter sing. And I can't come in here at night. You got plans? No. I'm not welcome. Church? Oh, you're always welcome to church. I'm not welcome with my son. Years back, before you and your family moved on the block, I had an argument with my son. How old is he? Well, he's grown up. We lost our tempers. And I said I didn't care to see him anymore. He said the same. We haven't spoken to each other since. You miss him. Why don't you call him? I'm afraid if I call him, he won't talk to me. How do you know? I don't know. I'm just afraid he won't. No offense, but aren't you a little old to be afraid? You can be a little old for a lot of things. You're never too old to be afraid. That's true. I've always been afraid of our basement. It's dark. There's weird stuff down there. And it smells funny. That sort of thing. It's bothered me for years. The basements are like that. Then I made myself go down there to do some laundry, and I found out it's not so bad. All this time I've been worrying about it, but if you turn on the lights, it's no big deal. What's your point? My point is you should call your son. What if he won't talk to me? At least you'll know. Then you can stop worrying about it, and he won't have to be afraid anymore. I don't care how mad I was, I talked to my dad. Especially around the holidays. I don't know. You could be a little old for a lot of things, Marley says, but you're never too old to be afraid. Marley was afraid to call his son. 
He was afraid that if he reached out, his son would reject him and blocked any, assort, any kind of attempt for meaningful reconciliation. However, it's Kevin, an eight-year-old boy, who gives the simplest and the wisest advice. Just call him. Even if he won't talk to you, at least you'll know. Then you can stop worrying about it. What have you got to lose? In Jesus, God has come into this world to draw us to Himself, but God has also come into this world to draw us to each other. The cross, the instrument on which Jesus died, on which Jesus gave His own life, serves as a symbol with both vertical and horizontal significance. Vertically, the cross connects us to God, doesn't it? Our maker, our creator, our designer, the one who put us together. Horizontally, the cross connects us to who? Each other, the people around us. And yet the sad reality is that there are some people out there, we're not sure we want to be connected to them. We're not sure we want to be in a relationship with them. Maybe we were in a relationship with them at one point. Maybe they were a part of our inner circle. But now, for whatever reason, they no longer occupy that sacred space. A dispute happened. A verbal clash broke out. And now we are no longer on speaking terms with them. Maybe it's an old friend. Maybe it's a colleague. Maybe it's a neighbor. Maybe it's a family member, a parent, a child, a sibling from whom we're estranged. Listen, I don't claim to know your story. I don't claim to know your specifics. But I do know that what happened to old man Marley in this movie happens to a lot of people, doesn't it? I've seen it. I've experienced it. If I could be perfectly transparent with you today, there have been times and seasons in my own life where I have not wanted to talk to certain people because of things that were said. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. We were taught that as kids, weren't we? Can we all agree that's a lie? That's not true. Words hurt. Certain actions hurt too. They leave wounds deep in our soul that resist healing. I have no intention today of trivializing or dismissing conflict. I don't want to do that. But I do intend by the good grace of God to proclaim the message of Scripture, to proclaim the message of the gospel that in Jesus Christ, God has come into this broken world to reconcile all things to himself. And that as Paul says so beautifully in 2 Corinthians, God has given the church, God has given to us as Christians the ministry of reconciliation. And reconciliation happens in part when we get out of our comfort zone, when we go to the people from whom we're estranged and we say things like, I forgive you, or I'm sorry. Consider these words that the Apostle Paul shares 
in Colossians chapter 3, verse 13. Paul says, make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. Hold on to that word, must. M-U-S-T, must. From a purely scriptural standpoint, forgiveness is not optional. It's not take it or leave it. It is mandated. It is commanded. God has forgiven us of all our faults, all our mess-ups, all our screw-ups. And God also commands us to forgive other people. C.S. Lewis once famously said, being a Christian means forgiving the inexcusable in others because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. Or what did Jesus teach us to say in the Lord's Prayer? Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Not as we try to forgive those who trespass against us. Not as we sometimes forgive those who trespass against us. But as we forgive those who trespass against us. The implication is we're doing it. We are being people of forgiveness. Let's be clear. Forgiveness does not mean that we dismiss or overlook what happened. But it does mean that we don't allow what happened to hold us prisoner or hostage. And so again, I don't claim to know your story. I don't claim to know your specifics. But what I want to suggest today, prayerfully, is maybe that's what God is calling you to do this Advent season. To let go of the bitterness, to let go of the pride, to let go of the hurt, to let go of the resentment that's been consuming your soul. To reach out, to send a message, to make a phone call, and to simply say, I'm sorry. Or I forgive you. I want to share with you a message that somebody who's connected to our church wrote to me. She says this, we, uh, that would be my husband and I, we had a falling out with our daughter. We had not seen her, our son-in-law, or our four grandchildren for over a year. Although we felt we were in the right, we did try to make amends a few times. We would get angry all over again after our attempts were met with accusations and we could never reconcile. We finally gave up even trying. It ended up being almost three years where we did not see or speak with any of them. The daughter, the son-in-law, the grandchildren. I had been so upset and sad over all this for so long. I prayed and I prayed. I felt it was a lost cause. I decided to fill the void by helping others. I donated my time at the horse shelter, and we started helping out at the church. This past Christmas, I was feeling particularly sad. I filled out a prayer card prior to the sermon. I wrote on it, please pray that we can reconcile and have resolution with our daughter. The sermon that day was about making peace with others and reconciling differences. We decided to give it one more attempt. Since then, since that last attempt, she says, we are all back to being a happy family. Praise God. I want to be clear. Not every story ends like this. 
I wish that were the case, but that's not always the case. Your experience could very well be different. But listen, even if you reach out and the other person rejects you, says, I don't want anything to do with you, you'll feel a sense of peace knowing that you tried and you did all that you could to repair the relationship. Well, at the end of Home Alone, spoiler alert, at the end of the movie, the wet bandits are arrested and Kevin McAllister gets what he wants for Christmas. He comes down the stairs on Christmas morning, and he sees his mom, and then later his dad and his siblings. Hugs and kisses are exchanged. Everybody is back together again. However, Kevin is not the only person in this movie who gets what he wants for Christmas. Somebody else does too. Take a look. In the end, Marley gets what he wants, doesn't he? He gets his son back. He gets his daughter-in-law. He gets his granddaughter, too. And all it took was a phone call. A phone call that he was initially too scared to make. Are you looking for the perfect holiday gift this season? Maybe it's saying, I'm sorry. Maybe it's saying, I forgive you. That one gift can make all the difference, and it will enable you to live into this incredible reality that God has accomplished in Jesus. Reconciliation with God and reconciliation with each other. Praise be to God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Let's pray. God, I think a big part of the reason we are so drawn to movies is that we find parallels within our own lives. We all experience brokenness in some way. Thank you, God, that in Jesus Christ, you have done something about the brokenness that we encounter. You have come and you have drawn us to yourself. And you draw us to each other. God, help us to live into this reality in whatever way that you are calling us to. Give us the power. Give us the strength. Give us the courage. We ask all these things in the holy name of Jesus. Amen.